there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RT News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me in studio today, our political guest is Fine Gael's Richard Bruton, and also I'm joined by Mary Regan of our political staff. Um, Richard Bruton, you're very welcome to the podcast. And um, You have a, a title, what is Chairman of the Parliamentary Party of Fine Gael. What on earth does that actually mean? What do you do? Well, that, I suppose I chair all these discussions where members put forward their suggestions for the budget and um, minister, ministers uh, field them as best they can. Uh, so it is a, it's, a, it's a dynamic environment, as you can imagine, with so much changing. Um, Do we you have also, any insights then into what's coming not really. I mean, I read the papers the same as you do and you get the signals from what people say. I think it'll be very similar to last year, but on a much greater scale. So there will be support for college fees, for childcare, for you know medical prescriptions and things like that, that are pinch points for living alone allowances, for fuel scheme. But there'll also be a more substantial tax package this year. So it'll be trying to identify all the many people who are now under pressure as a result of, of the uh, energy crisis. They're not just people on welfare. There's many people who might have the reputation of having a decent wage, but the reality, the mortgage pressure they're under, the fuel costs, the uh, rising other costs, uh, these, are, these are, are going to have to be addressed and will be addressed. I mean, you've got two sections. You've effectively got the year-on-year -year budget and then you've got the one-off measures um, budget. And... I was just attending the People Before Profits pre-budget submission and they were talking about how much money should be spent in those one-off measures. And they were ridiculing the idea that um, the finance minister would take some money from corporate tax receipts and put it into a rainy day fund when we are, as they say, it's not just raining, it's absolutely pouring and any money that's available to the state should be used now to assist people, as you were just saying, in really difficult positions, whether it's heating their homes, trying to drive between A and B or any other cost of living measures. Well, I suppose what's clear from this week is, from President Putin, is that this conflict is not by any way de-escalating. Uh, and the prospect that we're out of this and that it's a question of just getting people through this winter and we'll have our job done could be very naive. So the government has to keep something in the tank for being able to respond to evolving uh, changes that happen over the course of this year, the next year and so on. And we're fortunate to be in a relatively strong position to be able to do that. But it would be very unwise to blow all your money on just this winter, uh, not anticipating the, the difficulties that may lie ahead. How much of a challenge is that for uh, the government, do you think, Mary Regan, on the basis, on the one hand, the very idea that the need is going to be great and I think there is a general you know, fearfulness about what's going to come even in your electricity bills coming October and November and the idea that the government is going to save something in the tank for something that might happen um, further on next year. Yeah, I think if we think back to the start of the war in Ukraine, if we think back to before the summer when the government was coming under pressure to introduce an emergency budget, the focus started, um, you know, was was culminating around this idea of a package of one-off measures. It was seen as something that might be a sort of temporary fix that was needed for this winter and hopefully we'll get through this winter and then things will be okay. But the realisation has definitely um, manifested itself in the past couple of weeks, maybe the past two mo month or so, that this isn't going to be a one-off. So uh, 
this is something that will need to be addressed right into next year and most likely next winter as well. And I think that's why we're seeing now the government looking at keeping some money in reserve um, at at the moment to get through next winter. But it also poses the political um, difficulty for them, I suppose, that whatever measures are introduced next week and we're hearing there could be about three billion worth of measures so it's going to be you know a substantial cost of living package that it will set a precedent really because whatever is done this winter could uh be required you know in in next winter again so um the expectation i suppose is being built this time that could remain there next year you know if you know let's say something like energy credits are introduced which now seems likely a price cap on energy, which now looks unlikely, which Sinn Féin are calling for. Um, they're all things that people will continue to expect if their bills remain high next year. Yeah, I mean, Richard, but on that question of the, the cap, it's it's something that can be immediately understood by the ordinary citizen. I'm only going to have to pay this amount of money um, between now and, say, June, and then they can go back to their income and they can budget their way forward. The manner in which the government is doing is slightly different, saying we're going to give you a credit, but no one knows how good that credit is going to be in the context of any bill that comes through the door. Why are you going for that latter rather than the former? Well, it is down to the uncertainty of where uh, bills are heading. Uh, Like if you guarantee that the price won't go above a certain figure, the government takes entirely on itself the risk of rising energy prices. But what's so, wrong with that in the context of where we loaded the national debt with 40 billion to get over COVID? Is this not like a crisis of a similar dimension? No, it's a different type of crisis, this. it's You, you could see a permanent change in energy. And if the government underwrites that and says this is all you could see huge amounts of government resources that we want to see in education and health and transport in the structural changes we have to do to adapt a growing population our climate challenges wrapped up in trying to keep energy prices down Uh, and that would not be a good uh, way of using money and it also would leave us very vulnerable to uh, international players who recognise that the government is on the hook for all of this. You could see the uh, plotting that would then uh, happen for private interests seeking to exploit a government uh, undertaking of, of absolute enormous proportion. So it's just not sound finances and it doesn't respond to the immediate needs which are in health, in education, as well as cost of living. Mary, you were looking earlier on um, about how other countries within the European Union are looking at this particular issue and the Netherlands, a northern country, usually fiscally conservative, is still at the same time going to adopt a cap but they're taking a particular methodology with that. Can Mm. you tell us about that? Because it might be comparable yeah, and it seems to be a very politically appealing policy. Many would argue a necessary policy. And, you know, that's been borne out by many countries across Europe introducing this energy cap. But it also appears to be a very risky one. So the final outcome of it, we really are yet to to find out about because this is just being introduced in countries in, in recent weeks. Um, and if you look at the Netherlands, for example, it's been cited as an example by Sinn Féin, um, they introduced a price cap was announced yesterday. Now, it's limited somewhat because what they're introducing it is for 
average usage, let's say. So about two thirds of households will have their energy bills the same as they were at the start of this year. But about a third will have them increased because, you know, a bit like the proposal that was in place for water charges here at one point, if you use over the excess amount, you have to pay for that. So it is limited, unlike the UK one, for example, which is not limited, but also uh, how this is going to be financed. And in the Netherlands, they're looking at things like increasing um corporation taxes, for example, and there was a warning from the government there that they will have to hold back on planned spending for other departments. So, for example, there was a plan to recruit more teachers there. That's been put on hold. So these are the sort of choices that governments are making in order to address this big issue of energy costs. It does mean you know, holding back funding from elsewhere. And there's also the risk um, factor. Many economists are warning about this, that it, you know, could lead to a sort of bottomless pit of of spending and governments taking on the cost of energy when they don't really know exactly and there's so much uncertainty about where that will go. So it remains to be seen, I suppose, how much it's going to cost exchequers across across Europe. And then there's this also sort of... um, other issue around, you know, what effect it might have on households and business habits when it comes to energy uses, that it maybe um, it addresses the symptom, but not the cause. So it will encourage people to use, you know, more more energy, essentially, and not solve the overall problem about, about um, energy supply. But if the UK is doing the unlimited, um, we will pay no matter what cap. And the Dutch has got maybe an intermediate, a hybrid model of that. Does that have any um, positives from your sense? Because I really do feel that one of the um, reasons why people are so concerned is the absence of knowledge. If they had some knowledge that maybe they're able to, that two thirds of the bill is going to be locked in, then you can, you know, once again, you can budget your way out of this. But we're not in a situation where anyone can know that. And we are highly dependent on imports. So Britain, for example, has much more of its own uh, gas. So it's gaining on the price. Okay, it may be capping it so it can claw back. We are highly exposed. 85% of our fossil fuel is imported. So we are very exposed. And it makes more sense for us to invest in structural changes like the switch to electric, like the retrofitting, like the uh, sharing platforms, like the active transport. Many things we can do which are important for climate, important to keep down our costs today and reduce our dependence on energy. So a combination, I believe, is better of structural changes that we all need to make and help people to make those changes, support for the bills in the short term uh, and keeping some in reserve uh, to to be able to deal with all the many challenges in health and education that we face. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that this is being presented as a big U-turn by the Dutch government because just uh, two weeks ago they were absolutely ruling this out and then the political pressure came, you know, so strong that they eventually did introduce this price cap. So it might be something we might have to... In two uh, weeks' time, announcing the new departure. Can I just pick up on one thing you mentioned there, which was just the climate action? Because we do have a series of crises going hand in hand. Cost of living, we've got the energy crisis, and also the climate crisis. And in one of the many ministerial briefs you had was climate action. Looking at the targets as they currently constituted, rolling up to 2030, we already seem to be behind. We had the EU 2020 targets and we were behind. We had the Kyoto targets and we were behind. What is it uh, politically that prevents Ireland from being able to deliver and uh, sign up on the dotted line to certain targets and achieve them? Well, I think there's been too much talk about targets and not enough talk about delivery, to be honest. Uh, now, to be fair, we are on target for the electric, uh, the EV transfer, uh, the switching to electric 
to electric vehicles is actually ahead of where we thought. So we will hit that target. Uh, but in retrofitting, uh, you know, we, we, we are struggling. Now, COVID has obviously disrupted the ability to do retrofitting in many homes. I believe we, we need now to focus on shallow retrofitting, uh, that there is an opportunity in this crisis to go for shallow retrofitting. What in every, In other words, attics, uh, cavity walls, uh, heat controls, use of smart meters, things we've already <coughs> invested in that just need very little money to uh, deliver significant improvement in our energy at, say, a roll of rather insulation, than the very deep retrofits. But like say a roll of insulation used to cost around 16 euro, it's now 49 euro due to the difficulties that we've had, whether it's Brexit, whether it's supply lines. So uh, the grants that you're giving up to this point, are they not just going to be eaten up once again like inflation? No, there are 80% grants and they pay back... Uh, the overall investment in two years. So uh, this is a very quick win. Okay. Similarly, if you have cavity walls, very cheap to do. The wraparound is much more expensive. But you know, most of the focus is on 500,000 homes where there's another one and a half million homes which we aren't focusing on at the moment. I think trying to spread uh, that more thinly would be an appropriate thing in this very uh, acute period of crisis. Okay, uh, switching topics, um, Richard Booten, just in relation to pensions. Big announcement was made on the question of principle that um, the retirement age would remain at 66, additional benefits if you continue to work up to 70, um, there will be PRSI increases to pay for it. But the big but is we don't have the stats to find out what that PRSI increase is going to be. Why would the government introduce a policy when it doesn't have the numbers to back up that policy? Well, I think this has been a very uh, intense issue uh, that needs to be resolved and government has set up a commission which had, which had certain proposals in it. Uh, they needed to respond to that commission. They talked about re- con- continuing to raise the pension age as well as increasing PRSI. The government believed that that's not the best way to do it, that we Why? should stick. Because th- people have expectations, even young people uh, in, in surveys have said they do not want the 66 age raised, that they feel but is that where you have a bit of tough love? This idea, if you're looking at those statistics which suggest that we've now got 4.2 or 4.5 workers to every pensioner and by 2050 it's going to be 2 to 1, like it doesn't add up. It doesn't. Well, it, it does because they're taking back in other ways. You know, obviously there's the option to work on to 70 and in that situation people continue to earn and they also get some premium on their on their pension. But it isn't a, draw, a drain on the fund. It actually helps the fund. They're moving to a total contribution scheme instead of the present scheme that allows mm. people who enter uh, social insurance late to get a full pension after just 10 years. So there's going to be a fairer system than that some of those measures will save money, some won't. Uh, but obviously in the last uh, three years, since the last actuarial uh, assessment was done, it predicted that the pension fund today would be a billion in deficit. The minister now indicates that it's probably three billion in surplus. Yeah. So Although we have no done... We have, no, but we have done better. We've built a larger yeah. uh, number of people at work, a larger number of people contributing. Uh, so we don't have to immediately raise the contribution, but contributions will be necessary in the longer term uh, to, to, to make the fund uh, wash its face. As a, as a long-time political observer, Mary, what do you think of this announcing a principle but saying, I'll be back to you in six months uh, and we'll work out how to pay for it? Yeah, well, I think the government was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. It had two problems, really, that it had to solve here. One of them was the political problem and just how absolutely toxic it was to raise the pension age. We learned that in the last general election, an issue that caught seemingly everyone by surprise, except perhaps Sinn Féin, which seemed 
prepared um, to address it when it was coming up on the doorsteps. And then the other problem the government had was this sort of longer term um, potential black hole in the pe- in the social insurance fund. I think what they achieved in Cabinet this week solved the first problem. It solved the political problem quite well, I think. And, you know, you speak to anyone in government, they seem quite pleased. There's a lot of praise for Heather Humphreys and especially this proposal around the sort of sl- sliding scale and the, the options that are available to people. But I think it still hasn't solved the other problem, and that is the the problem with the uh, social insurance fund, because we're being told that this will be paid for by PRSI increases, but the precise detail, exactly how much and when exactly, that's still not tied down. And I think the people who will ultimately have to face that reality or make those payments in their PRSI, they're probably the people who are under 35 at the moment, which points to a really interesting political perspective of, of this, which is that you have the government parties on the one hand pointing out that they want to do more to help younger people, younger people struggling with housing, younger people struggling with with prospects and security. And Sinn Féin in particular, a party who's you know focusing an awful lot of their attention on the issues facing younger people. Um, however, it, it's it's this younger generation who are ultimately being asked to sign, you know, what looks like a blank check down the line. So um, you, it would seem to me that the political parties are addressing concerns that were really raised and really pressed home at the last election by 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 older older voters and people who were really concerned about you know the prospect of having yeah. having to to retire to to. Um, retire and have their pen- the pension age increased, you know. OK. Um, we're going to be joined shortly by um, our political correspondent, Micheál Lehan. But um, a couple of last questions, um, Richard Bruton. Um, as chairperson of the party, have you found that your TDs, backbench TDs and senators have been saying um, Pascal Donoghue needs to be the Eurogroup president, otherwise let's trigger a general election and we're going to charge out behind Pascal? No, I think that's not the case. But I think people do recognise that having the Eurogroup chair is uh, uh, an important asset to Ireland. Why? Uh, what can you tell me? Two things that Pascal Dunne has been able to deliver that we wouldn't have delivered if he was just sitting around the table. Well, Euro policy, the Eurogroup policy influences everything that happens here and from, from interest rates to the types of policies they put in place to protect our, the, the strength of the Euro. Uh, it is really important, like any other area where big economic issues that Ireland's voice is heard. You've been been asked that European Council for many, many years. And my experience as um, a European correspondent for five years was that if there was an issue at Eurogroup or anywhere else, what happened was it was kicked upstairs to the EU leaders. So again, comes back to the question as to whether or not... My experience would be different from that. Um, My experience would be that if you have allies within the European Council and you are trying to get something that's in Ireland's interest, that is an enormous asset. Uh, And they will attempt to resolve issues around that table. So if you have someone who is well uh, embedded with the group, you do get better outcomes for the country. Now, that that may not be uh, exactly how things are supposed to work, but these are, you know, these are personal relationships that are valuable. But I, I suppose, well, let's talk about it technically then. I didn't quite understand why the Tánaiste and Fine Gael leader, Leo Varadkar, was going publicly, banging the table, saying Pascal Donoghue needs to be there when the issue was going to be resolved within the leaders. And that in diplomatic terms, would it not have been wiser for him to have quiet conversations with Eamon Ryan and Micheál Martin because it nearly seemed to precipitate Michael McGrath, the Fianna Fáil uh, Minister for Public Expenditure, having to go onto RT's This Week programme and say, here's the line 
I have to be finance minister both domestically and in European terms. Well, I, I don't think this uh, issue is the invention of any one politician. I mean, we've known that this change uh, was coming and this is a real issue. Uh, it's out there. People are talking about it. Would Ireland lose by losing this post? So I think the fact that it's been a matter of public debate is not surprising. Uh, now, what the outcome is, I, I, I'm not privy to, to that discussion, but uh, there is an issue here that Ireland has to think about uh, and we will see how, as you say, the leaders ultimately resolve it, yeah. but it is a real issue in which there is a public interest. I mean, just at the same, same topic, but just like one of your things as chairperson of the Parliamentary Party, you are dealing with um, individual people in the Shannon, you're dealing with backbenchers who are able to give you a sense of where the party stands. I mean, I didn't pick up a sense within the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party that this was the issue that they wanted to hear their leader talk about. They'd other things like budget, like energy. That's what they wanted to hear Leo Racker talking about. That was just my sense of it. What did you hear? Well, I think it's it's a real issue. You know, a leader talks about what he's asked about. Uh, so I, I I wouldn't start uh, analysing what people respond to in interviews like this. You ask me a question, I'll answer it to sure. the best of my ability. Someone outside the door might say, well, you shouldn't have answered that question. <laughs> Uh, you know, so I think you know, it is a real issue out there. I'm not saying that uh, you know, Ireland Inc. will not survive if Pascal isn't kept in that position. That's not the case. But clearly, you do have to assess: is this a, is this an asset that we're, uh, we're 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 allowing slip through our fingers? And that's the issue that I suppose is on the leaders' table at the moment. Richard Bruton, Parliamentary Chairman, thank you very much for Fine Gael, thank, for, you. thank you very much for joining us. Um, Mary Regan, if I can just pick that up with you. I mean, isn't um, Richard Bruton right? We we are multilateral um, supporters. We believe in influence. We believe in soft power. Having, um, you know, our finance minister as the chair of the Eurogroup, isn't that something that would be of value to the country? Yes, and uh, I cover the European Parliament in Strasbourg from time to time, as do, do you, Paul, and Someone uh, there mentioned to me recently that if things had worked out differently, Ireland would hold three of the most, some of the most powerful positions in Europe with having the Trade Commissioner in Phil Hogan. Uh, the President of the European Parliament could have been Mairead McGuinness and uh, the head of the Eurogroup in, in Pascal Donoghue. Three really powerful positions that Fine Gael could potentially have held in Europe, but things, as we know, worked out differently, largely for political reasons. And uh, Phil Hogan, uh, you know, after after golf, Golfgate, Phil Hogan was replaced by Mairead McGuinness. And now there is the potential for Ireland losing that position in in the uh, Eurogroup with this changeover happens in December. But as you said, I don't detect a huge strength of feeling within the Fine Gael party for Pascal Donoghue to stay on as Minister for Finance. This is, I think, something that is being driven largely by Leo Varadkar um, and Pascal Donoghue and the leadership of the party themselves, rather than something that's being fed from the back benches or anything like that. What's your sense of Emil? Do you because that was the way I certainly agree with Mary. That was the way it felt like to me. And do you have any insight into the strategy that Leo Varadkar adopted? It seemed to be the the blunderbust, just like go straight at it, you know, head first, and hope that it sort of yielded a result. Yeah, because it was interesting that the negotiations around that rotation of the ministries and of the Taoiseach aren't going to start until after the budget, but clearly they they have started in public already. So I think that was significant. It was significant that that decision was made and it also sets down a marker that things mightn't be quite as straightforward uh, as people within Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael might have thought, uh, given the way the government was formed and the fairly amicable terms uh, that existed around its formation ultimately when that, when 
that deal was struck. So I think there is a bit of horse trading going on. And it is notable that the someone as fairly diplomatic as Michael McGrath has reacted in the way he has. And the Taoiseach too himself was fairly forthright on Morning Ireland last week talking about this, that that was the line that Fianna Fáil would get uh, the Department of Finance. Uh, so it's interesting and it's interesting too that you're beginning to see those ripples across the coalition yesterday when you have Fianna Fáil TDs from Dublin, John Lahart, Paul McAuliffe and Jim O'Callaghan uh, criticising in a private meeting albeit but yet it's clearly known what they said criticising the Justice Minister over what they termed lawlessness in Dublin. So this is beginning to happen uh, at a kind of a key moment around the changing of the ministries and government. But I suppose you could equally say it's not entirely surprising because you are reaching a point too where the election uh, gets to become the dominant theme in at least some politicians' heads. As in the general election? Well, they look first to Europeans and the and the locals, which aren't that far away, and then the, the general as well. So I think parties are seeking already to define themselves as being different while still looking to try and keep that government together. Um, Mary, just coming to the budget, I guess that's the big thing people are thinking just in a few days' time, the big budget, the billions are going to land. To what extent do you think it's possible for a government to assist and we hear, and we heard it today from the Thaunch and Fine Gael leader, Leo Varadkar, it was cushion. So are they going to be able to cushion enough um, or is this something which could lead to major difficulties where they fire their budget bullets and they just are blanks? Well, I think, you know, there's huge expectation. I can't recall a budget where there was so much expectation around it in the build up to it and the fact that the government did take that, what was a gamble really, by not holding a mini budget earlier on in the year and by holding out despite all the political pressure that was p- being piled on them to hold a budget before the summer. Uh, so as they would see it, I think at this point that that gamble turned out to be the right thing to do really and that this assistance is coming at a time when it's when it really is mo- going to be most needed. Um, but, you know, we're looking at an overall package that could amount to something close to 10 billion when you take into account 6.7 billion for the uh, budget 2023. And then you look at the cost of living package, which was initially just before the summer, they were talking about a package of 1 billion that turned to 2 billion. And then the figure now that we're hearing is closer to 3 billion. So I think in that context of the size um of the overall package, regardless of the level of expectation that might be there, uh, I, I think there is limited potential for political slip-ups or, you know, any banana skins in this budget. What do you think, Michal? I mean, it, it, it's a tricky one. Um, on the one hand, we're talking about Michael Noonan, Millens and Billens. At the same time, given the scale of the crisis, and once we hit the depths of winter, who knows? Yeah, that's the thing. I think governments, no matter what they do through the weekend in their negotiations, they don't really know uh, whether what the final figure will be sufficient given the uncertainty. And as well as that, if budgets kind of deliver and there are no mess ups in them from a political perspective, they're largely forgotten about uh, by the public. Uh, that's always kind of when it comes to the calling of elections, when it calling to public reaction, that's a reality. It probably will be somewhat different this time because if those bills do continue to go up uh, and government has moved, if it is insufficient, that will become apparent very quickly. And yes, there are the credits that are going to probably roll in October, December and February, but will that be sufficient? Uh, it may not be. And I still think politically it is going to get 
probably more difficult uh, to justify the non-cap uh, decision uh, as the months go by and as the weeks go by. Does that mean, sorry, once, sorry. just one quick follow-up on that, um, Micheal, does that mean you could be looking at a COVID um, strategy where you're talking about increasing the national debt to pay the bill? I think there is no doubt an already government talking about that they need to keep some money back uh, for but, later on. Does that mean, in, in the, as the calculation goes at the moment, they seem to think that money would be for the period post-March. But you do feel that the, that extra cash could be called upon much quicker than that. Sorry, Mary. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on Mihol saying about the justifying the not introducing this cap. As I was saying, the fact that the Dutch government U-turned so quickly and changed their minds from between 14 days saying absolutely not to saying yes, the pressure is so much that we have to introduce this. I think that is something that could be telling for, you know, something that could happen here. And I think a lot of the focus will be on November. Um, that is when I think people in government are seeing that, you know, the big bills will be coming, the hard cases will start being reported about, um, about people, you know, being unable to, to make ends meet. And that is, I think, the sort of tricky point when you come into you know, November and those bills that land in November. It's notable too, though, that government had no choice really but to bring the budget forward at the end of December. But in hindsight, having gone that far uh, and given that weather is an issue in all this and it has been mild up to now, if it had been two weeks later, it probably could have potentially politically a greater impact if it was held at its more traditional time in October. (laughs) But... In the midst of summer... strangest things can influence Yeah, but but there there was no choice though. Yeah. when the decision was made in the summer. right up. Listen, well, if there is a huge reversal, we will certainly invite back Richard Bruton to discuss why it was absolutely imperative for the government to introduce some form of partial cap. But um, that's all we have for you on your politics podcast from RT News. I'd like to thank my guests, the chairman of, or chairperson of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, Richard Bruton, RT's political correspondent, Micheál Lahan, and RT's political reporter, Mary Regan. That's all we have for you. Please do leave some comments. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, take care. 